Hello and welcome to the next episode of The Podcast, a cannabis podcast for budding enthusiasts. As always, these episodes could not happen without the fantastic support of our sponsors. Seeds here now, you know them and love them. Best in the business if you're looking for a North American-based seed option featuring the latest and greatest breeders, all the hottest drops, and guess what? They've got an incredibly schmick new website with fantastic new prices. They've been slashing the cost of everything to give you the best deal while still offering their guarantee on both satisfaction and germination. Don't delay. Best in the business. Thank you so much. Likewise, huge shout out to our friends Simply Souvenirs, our homies holding down the fort in Europe. If you're in the UK or Europe and you're looking for a hand-selected range of boutique genetics from both local and international breeders, check out Simply Souvenirs. They have the best customer service in the game, as well as new drops occurring on the regular, including some amazing smoking accessories, vapes, dab accessories and rigs, so much more. Check them out, Simply Souvenirs. We appreciate you guys. In order to make a name for yourself, you not only need to find and make some good genetics, you need to run them properly. Check out our friends, Copa Biological Systems. They have all the best solutions in the game for all pests and pathogens. The best way to keep your garden happy, healthy and pumping on all cylinders is to be proactive. Don't wait for an infestation, guys. Get onto it now. Grab yourself some Acupar-M if you're worried about aphids or some Spidex Vital if you've got spider mite issues. I promise you guys, knowing that your garden is pest and pathogen free is next to heavenliness. There's nothing better than a high quality crop that is 100% free of contaminants. And shout out Copert Biological Systems. We appreciate you guys so much. Likewise, you gotta make sure you're getting the most out of your garden. And for that, we need to give a big shout out to our friends at Pulse Sensors. If you're after more yield, more resin, higher quality concentrates and flowers, you need to get serious about your growth. So get a pulse. There are many hidden variables that can hold your grow back that you simply may not even be aware of. VPD is a common one. You can't feel it, you can't see it, you don't know about it. But let me tell you, your plants do. If you get a pulse sensor and dial the parameters in, you will see your plants responding in front of your eyes. From a single tent to a single room to a multi-facility operation, don't hold your next crop back. Get serious, get a pulse sensor. A huge shout out to the Patreon gang. If you guys want to get early access to upcoming content, unheard exclusive interviews with some of your favorite guests, as well as access to ad-free content and genetic giveaways going down monthly, check out the Patreon, www.patreon.com forward slash the podcast. All right, all right, all right, my friends. We're back for part two of this special installment with Snow High, the incredible genetic genius behind Snow High Seeds. I hope you enjoyed part one. If you haven't heard it, go back and jump into it before you hear this one. It'll make more sense. So without further ado, let's get into it. 
So you just referenced the uh, the OG and the Skywalker. The I've heard rumors of a few different Skywalkers going around. I've heard one that it's like just a straight OG, but I've heard that there's another one that goes around that's actually like the original one crossed to Bubba or something like that, and and that's also called Skywalker, and it's very good. Do you know the one you're fond of? Is that like the very straightforward OG one, or does it seem a little different to you? Well, when when I was growing these and breeding these, this was like the height of the OG Kush crazes, you know, um, as far as the medical clubs having them. So it was like the height of the medical club scene. Um, I have, you know, I got them before they were like super popularized. The Skywalker, also a lot of people thought there was one done by like Barney's Farm or something, which is like Blueberry and something, Mazar and Blueberry. That's not Skywalker OG. Skywalker, it, it was just meant as you know a high flying og you know that's why it was called skywalker not because it was part of like some dutch hybrid um skywalker and some of the ogs um they're different than each other so there's like the the triangle kush out of florida there's uh, og kush out of um, southern california there is the tahoe um they all look different so what what is happened is these are all familiar? These are all strains that are very familiar to each other because the genetics are very similar, um, but they are definitely different. Uh, they grow differently, they look differently, and they smoke differently. But they have similar character, uh, you know, characteristics. So a lot of the what people call OG Kushes are different lines that are similar. You know, they are um, Afghani Pakistani lines with maybe uh, some tie-in involved in there. Um, it's, it's hard to say exactly, but the Skywalker uh, grows and looks differently than the Tahoe. Tahoe looks similar to uh, like Pure Kush. Um, the San Fernando Valley looks similar to Bubba, but they're they're different. Um, Master Kush looks similar to San Fernando Valley and uh, G13. Um, but you know, it, there's there's different varieties that are very similar to each other but they're definitely different and the problem is a lot of stuff that was popularized was from bag seed so a lot of people got bag seed and they grew those out as the strain and then that was what most people got their hands on uh, and even with you know um, bag seed uh, the plants will look different you know than the mother you'll have different variations or it came from uh, a impromptu fertilization of different lines that were growing you know they it hermed on another you know clone that they had and then he has some like multi-poly hybrid of a you know a kush variety um so uh, the the problem is there was no real breeding done with a lot of these varieties so you know it's hard to say what it was what it was like that's why i breed with certain land race and heirloom lines so i create lines that i know the you know the pedigree otherwise a lot of people are arguing like oh no that's my clone that was my work it's all hearsay but um, you know, and I don't want to fight with people. There's no point to it. So if you want to create something created from original, you know, lines, um, but you know, there's, there's, it's just at this point, there's been so much mix that, uh, they call, um, you know, OG Kush, but OG Kush is actually several different varieties that, um, have the same effects and same looks and tastes. Yeah, that's a good point. 
I guess I'm wondering, you know, can we expect to see you then work with any of the other more sort of modern strains? I know you've done a cross with cookies before, but I haven't seen any runs or gelato. Do you think you'll incorporate more of the popular stuff or just stick to the more old school? Um, I I could do the other lines. Well, I've always had like Girl Scout cookies. We, we grew the first uh, cutting available at the time. I call it panty dropper. Um, I didn't release the seeds much. Some people got some packs, but there's the, uh, the panty dropper and the panty dropper special edition. Um, so, uh, yeah, there it's Girl Scout cookies with the, um, the two males that created the, the true gangster Kush. Uh, that's, that's the panty dropper and the special edition is, uh, the panty dropper with the hell's angel, um, line, which is the OG Kush with the true gangster Kush line. Um, and those need to be revisited and kind of worked out because the stability of the Girl Scout cookies was, it was, uh, you know, um, Durban poison and OG Kush with the cherry pie. And there was some bag seed issues, you know, it was created from hermaphroditic, um, reproduction. And so instate, insta- unstable to begin with, then that's not kind of great for, you know, uh, creating lines from. Um, you need to stabilize the line and then release it. Um, if, if I'm going to use a cutting, um, I'm going to grow it out and then see if it's worth, you know, the trouble. Like the Pink Panther was kind of a unstable line, but trying to breed with it to stabilize it some for the qualities that it had was worth the time because it uh, produced some medicinal, um, get smokable flowers. You know, the flowers turned purple and red and had a beautiful um, grape liqueur uh, smell and taste. Um, so it was like a grape oat Kush, uh, but it grew better and yielded better, but it also has some CBD to it. So it, was, it had some medicinal qualities that were similar to um, the anti-seizure uh, CBD strain called uh, Charlotte's Web. It had the same ratio of like three to one CBD. Uh, so it was medicinal at the same time. Um, yeah. So yeah, there may be some uh, in the future, some of the modern stuff, but why everybody else is doing that. I, you don't need another person doing it unless there's going to be, um, you know, an increase to the line. I'm going to improve it in some way. Like with uh, the East coast sour diesel, there was so many sour diesels on the West coast that there was shit to grow. Uh, they weren't worth growing because they didn't have the full, flavor of the sour diesel you know they didn't have the the sourness the the smell the taste the aroma uh, but they were sour diesel ish and that was what was going around as clones for sour diesel um, so it it wasn't worth growing uh, it, it yielded well but you know it didn't it wasn't sour diesel like it should be the east coast sour diesel clone was tired um, it didn't yield well or root well um, but it had the smell and flavors of the, the great perfect high so Basically, I wanted to uh, work with something fresh, so I, I selfed it, um, and then I created uh, a couple females from that, picked the best one. The first generation with uh, the Neville's Hayes Purple Time Male, um, you know, they're 50-50. Sometimes they're, they're, there's some good females, and some of them are kind of, you know, not so good. So I had to pick the best um, plants from that first generation into the F2s, and the F2s is what I released as the West Coast Purple Diesel. Um, so you get those, you know, qualities, the East Coast Sour Diesel with those good traits, the smell, the sourness, uh, that fantastic high resin production and aroma, but with 
good rooting, big plants, big buds. It's everything you'd want from what was supposed to be sour diesel, but without the problems. Not to say that recessives won't pop up, but you're going to have a more stable line, which will give you all the characteristics that you love from sour diesel. And that would be the only reason to kind of revisit some of these lines that are popular with people. Yeah, interesting. Are you in general open to like S1ing old clones and just sort of trying to revitalize them like that? I know that CSI. No. Okay. Yeah. Good. Tell us more. No. No. I. I don't. I don't like uh, selfing anything because it, you, if you're going to self something, it should be true breeding. Because if it's not, you're going to be inviting problems. If you're selfing or you know feminizing plants that aren't stable, when you grow them out, you can have all kinds of issues. They're not going to be exact replicas. They're going to be all over the place. And that's the issue. Um, You know, if you're going to do that, might as well just make, you know, regular seeds Um, because you're going to invite instability and um, intersex traits into a plant, uh, which is unstable to begin with. And then you're going to be having people that aren't expert growers um, that are stressing out the plants uh, creating more plants from the, the intersex traits that are going to invariably pop up from these unstable plants. And uh, it's just a mess that I don't care to get into unless I'm trying to save a plant. Um, you know, if there's only like one plant, then there's ways of, you know, selfing them, going to those lines, finding the males and females from the selfing process, and then slowly breeding towards something that is stable from that, you know, uh, selfing of that line that's, you know, lost or uh, extinct you know if there's only one plant left and i've come into that problem where i had only um you know a few plants and then those plants that were with it that were the same line died i only had one plant left and then i had to breed uh, similar plants like the acapulco gold line i bred which was two different acapulco gold lines but i could have selfed them and then you know hoped for males to breed with the females to eventually make a more stable line. So in that, in those cases, I am, uh, I think selfing it has its place. And then for tired lines, uh, like there was uh, a, a strain called Afghanistan. It was grown for like 30 years in Kansas. Um, you know, when you breed with that line and make seed, um, the seeds don't last as long because they're from a tired old clone. Um, and the viability of those seeds is even shorter. So, um, you know, creating an S1 of that and then breeding would might be the, the way to do it. But, create, you know, growing from that old clone, uh, these clones are just replicas, you know, copies of copies of copies. If you take a copier and take a picture, it gets blurrier and blurrier. Uh, same thing happens with these clones. They're just not the same as it once was. Um, and they need to be refreshed once in a while. They need to grow from a new seed and be refreshed. Otherwise, they're just very tired old seeds. Uh, or old seed lines, and uh, there's issues to them. Yeah, that's a great point. And we've had guests in the past say that one way, just speculated that um, you might be able to sort of revitalize these plants is to let them veg under the sun if they're indoor plants at all. I guess given your library with so many old school clones, what do you do to maintain those old mothers? And is there any special tips like the sunlight one you have? Um, well, it depends on where you live. So if you're, um, you know, far enough south, you can actually grow plants all year round outdoors, um, depending on your environment or with the help of a greenhouse to extend your growing season. You just need to use a little nitrogen to kind of put them back into veg chemically. And then 
um, leaving enough growth on them to, you know, maintain growth uh, until the um, the sun is into a place where it starts vegging again. Um, so you, I've had plants growing outdoors. Uh, one of them is chocolate tie. I've ran for three years outdoors, uh, but I've had, uh, what was it? God, I had another one that went for seven years um, and just kept growing it outdoors, um, you know, to see how long I can grow it. Um, and that happens like in Nepal, you get these plants that have been growing for decades and they get to be, you know, three, four stories above the house, you know, in Nepal and these huge plants. And that doesn't just happen over like one year. <laughs> it happens over, you know, years and years of it growing. Um, but as far as maintaining the plants, uh, it's hard to keep a library of all these different plants. So um, I think that you should make a line that is um, strong with males and females so you can preserve the line of seeds. And then that way you don't have to keep clones of it. You can keep special plants, but it's really difficult to keep a library of you know all these different plants. It's just too much stress. And if you have health conditions like myself, it's almost impossible to do because you might have days or weeks where you're not able to um, tend to the plants. So, you know, things happen, you know, as far as dust the plants and you don't have anybody to tend to them. So um, the other thing is, is micro, micro propagation doing like in vitro uh, tissue culture. Uh, more people should try to get into that where they can maintain things with, uh, you know, a little plantlet, a little stem and uh, maintain plants that way. And I think that that'd be a good way moving forward for people to have large collections in a smaller place, um, you know, to be able to maintain those things, you know, um, seed, old seeds will be able to be um, germinated a lot easier with those type of methods as well. So, you know, trying to get lost seeds, seed lines that aren't able to germ uh, any other way is to, you know, propagate them that way. Wow. That sounds like some cool stuff. I know a lot of people have been chasing the, um, what is it, the artificial embryo sort of for, for well and truly sort of dead seeds. But in your personal library, what are the oldest seeds you have and what are some that you're sort of keen to look into that get you excited? Oh, man. I have seeds that are back from the 60s, um, 60s, 70s. 80s, 90s. <laughs> I have a bunch from different periods of time. Um, yeah, I have old Acapulco Golds. I have old Panama Reds. Um, you know, those, and I've got a bunch of other old Mexicans that are just, you know, who knows how old they are. Uh, but um, they need special, um, you know, propagation methods. Um, yeah, there's a lot more, and I'm just not telling you everything, but there's a lot of cool stuff that would be great to revive and um you know i'm working on methods to try to um revive those old lines so that we could all enjoy them again uh, but basically they're extinct at this point until um the method is made better to attempt to uh, bring those back so the, the process are it's it's a work in progress at, at the moment but i've been able to work on old seeds i've been able to germinate you know 30 30 plus old seeds um so that's you know, that's not an easy thing. 10-year-olds, 20-year-olds seeds is not a problem. That's kind of, you know, typical. Wow, that's really impressive. I think a lot of people are finding it's 
definitely becoming more challenging to, to pop seeds that are getting older. Do you have any tips for people who are trying to pop some old seeds? There's another method too. The seeds that were created from organic methods, meaning they were like sun-grown, seem to last a lot longer than seeds that were chemically made like with chemicals indoors. A lot of people find viability of like seeds that were created indoors using like chemicals, but only last a couple of years. Um, you know, with sun-grown seeds, you can grow them six to 10 years, no issues. And if they've been stored well, you can even grow them, you know, keep them for longer periods of time. Um, for germinating seeds, for old seeds, um, it, it's sterile methods. Um, same thing as like the scarification. Um, you can use, there's lots of different methods. Some of them might work, some of them might not. But the only thing that kind of pushes things past uh, dormancy is um, gerbilic acids. But the problem with gerbilic acids is uh, that if you use too little, it does nothing. If you use too much, you end up killing the seeds. Um, and if you find the right amount, you're still dealing with like elongation, like long, you know, um, you know sprouts um, in issues that way, which, you know, if you got an old seed, that's no big issue, but uh, it's hard to find the right ratio to germinate seeds that way. Um, but if you only got a couple of seeds, you could end up killing the seeds. So it's almost not worth it. But I'd say um, softening the seeds with like a disinfectant, like hydrogen peroxide, 50-50, um, and then pulling off the seed coat after uh, two to three days, uh, taking the embryo and then doing in vitro would probably be the best method after you've um, you know disinfected it. Um, and then you need uh, certain augers and hormones to be able to um, you know uh, germinate those seeds in a, an auger solution like you would for tissue culture. Yeah! Wow! Brilliant! Very high tech answer. I love it. I love it. So. In general, this is a bit of a curveball one, but I thought you'd have a probably a good take on it. What's like the most wildly unexpected results you got from popping like a land race or like an heirloom sort of line? Just really left of field. Hmm. I found I've, I've popped seeds that had like double embryos, like it was uh, two plants in one seed. That was kind of cool. Um. You know, like getting two different uh, germination sprouts out of one embryo seed, um, you know. Um, oh, yeah. Usually yeah. one is weaker than the other, you know, but uh, it, it'd be interesting to see how those would turn out, you know, from beginning to end. If, you know, one was more potent, if one had certain traits or if one was more female and the other was male. Uh, I've had like a, a Lao strain, which um, it topped itself and then. On one side of the plant, um, which is what had one one root, but it, it basically went up and snapped in half. And then one side was all female with female flowers, and then the other side was male. So it was like a monaceous plant on one plant. So it was you know one sex on the other. It wasn't intersex, but it was male and female on the same plant. You know, self pollinating itself. So I found that to be cool. Yeah, wow, that's that's really neat. But for as far as germination processes, um, you know, I don't know. There's nothing real special about germination. It's, you know, um, I, I like to pull them off, and you know, I use like a pinching motion to kind of pinch off the the films um, off the uh, the embryos. So once you pull off the seed shell, there's a there's a film which you can kind of pinch off, 
Um, and then, you know, it basically comes out, you know, you have the little sprout, like a little embryo sprout. I'd say, don't be scared of that. Um, a lot of more people should be popping their seeds and removing the seed shells because you can get a, a higher percentage to, um, germinate once you've, um, you know, removed the shell. The problem is it's kind of a, you know, it, sometimes you end up squishing them or destroying them. Um, but if you don't, if you wait too long, more than like three days, the embryo will become too soft anyway, and it'll just, you know, mold or squish very easily. So you got to do it within the two to three day period. There's a small window, which you can actually move them and, you know, they'll, they'll hold together. Um, but sowing those uh, in a sterilized uh, soil will improve germination. Um, so you, you'll get maybe, you know, a few more plants and sometimes you get all your plants germinating. Uh, if you didn't, you'd only get a few sometimes. Um, so I, I'd say people should practice on seeds um, that aren't as valuable to them and, you know, practice removing the seed shell and then removing the film and then sowing those seeds. I think that's, that's something that sh people should do um, for all their seeds after a few days. Otherwise, they're going to rot in the soil uh, or dry up. Um, yeah. And I think I digging up the seeds. If so, if you sow the seeds directly in soil, um, you should also dig them up after uh, two to three days. And uh, do the same, clean them off, remove the seed shell, remove the film, and then sew them back in the same uh, spot they were uh, or fr in fresh soils. Because sometimes if they're, the soil is too moist, uh, that you'll need to, um, um, you know, provide another sterilized soil. The other thing is providing little fans over uh, the uh, germinating places. So if you have uh, seeds in like a starter tray or in beer cups, you should have a little fan providing circulation over them. So it kind of dries them out. Otherwise the heat from the, the lights or the sun and the, the moisture in the soil will cause molding, which will cause a damp off, which will kill the plants or the seeds and seedlings. So having a little, a good air circulation is very uh, important uh, for germinating seeds. Um, a lot of people don't do that. And then their seeds die and then they, you know, blame the breeder. <laughs> <laughs> yeah definitely look i agree that people need to learn to become their own little seed surgeons i like yourself have saved a number of seeds that probably wouldn't have made it otherwise but i mean while we're on the topic of saving plants i wanted to know what's the oldest plant you've managed to save and hang on to do you have like a super like 30 year old cutting what do you got no i don't um i've had old cuttings given to me by other people but um i typically like to preserve a line in seed form um, because it's easier to store and travel with um, because it's just too much energy to uh, maintain clones for years and years and years. Uh, there should be a reason, you know, unless it's something special that you want to keep around. Um, majority of stuff uh, I like to, to preserve in seed form just because, uh, you know, if something happens, you've got to back up that way. Uh, otherwise, you got to spread those clones out to friends. If you don't give out your, your clones to friends, then you lose that line. Uh, just like I lost the chocolate tie um, during my, my aunt's um, passing of cancer. Um, if I had uh, been able to pass it out to people, I would have been able to possibly get that back. So sharing is actually a good way of keeping the genetics and even be able to get it back at some point. Yeah, certainly. I've learned that myself in the past. Unless you share it out there, you risk losing it. So some sage advice there. And while we're on the topic, one of the fan submitted questions we got said, 
Please ask Snow High to talk about Darwell's chocolate tie and the golden dragon. Golden dragon? Hmm. I don't know any about any golden dragon. Uh, oh, uh, golden dragon, my strain, I guess. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so um, the the dro, dro is, is my friend's um, name backwards. So it's his name backwards. <laughs> yeah, 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 Howard, yep. Yeah, Howard. So uh, Howard is, he went to my, uh, my wedding. Uh, he's a good friend of mine. So Howard, uh, the, these came from Chocolate Tie. These came from Chocolate Tie Sticks. Um, so what people don't realize is it Chocolate Tie was named by the sellers. So here it looks like, you know, what people have is Chocolate Tie. He's got the, uh, I still have some of that uh, Chocolate Tie Stick left too. I need to pull out and smoke it. Um, but it's got a musky aroma and taste like tobacco and chocolate uh, it's got a euphoric effect a body effect but it also has the tie soaring effect so it's um kind of like a punta rojo a colombian punta rojo but it's like the tie equivalent you know it's got the the body effect so i had theorized that the chocolate tie has was a lowland variety um because it's got like um indica characteristics but it's not an indica um, so it's got a chunky, larger flowering, uh, bigger buds. Um, it's got the characteristics of, you know, muskiness, uh, like a purple tie. There's also purple tie phenos in it, but it's not as common. Um, so, uh, that chocolate tie was from chocolate tie sticks and, um, it should be grown out in, um, larger selections done on it, but it's been a, a conservation of a chocolate tie stick line. Um, and it is a great and super potent line. Um, it may not look like much growing. And that's the problem. A lot of people have is like, they expect this narrow leaf Highland tie looking plant and it doesn't grow like that. And especially when it's in veg, um, cause uh, with a lot of, uh, sativas and tropicals and equatorial plants, um, the leaves are solar panels. They in veg, they are trying to produce stem and growing the plant structure. So when it flowers and starts to flower, the solar panels, the leaves will go from like seven to five to three to two to one. Well, three to one, typically not two to one, but um, basically the, the sea, the, the leaves will narrow. So they'll get narrow and there'll be less leaves and production will go to producing cannabinoids, resins, um, turpins, that type of thing and less growth of the uh, flowers and stem is done in that period of, of, of growth. Um, so people don't realize that when they see these plants in veg, they'll have broader leaves because the plant is creating, you know, its roots and structure. You know, it's not, it's not yet producing the flowers. So as it flowers, then they thin out. Um, some of them are naturally thinner than others. Some varieties like the Highland varieties will have thinner leaves, but there's so many different varieties of leaves. Um, you know, some of them are super long, like, um, like a eucalyptus or a weeping willow, um, you know, or long banana leaves will be thick and long, or they'll be really thin and long. Um, but uh, people have this uh, thing in their mind that these Thai varieties are very narrow leaf thin um, and not, there is some like that, but they're not all like that. And they come in different sizes and shapes. Um, so the, the, that is a chocolate tie line derived from seeds from imported chocolate tie sticks. That's the Dro chocolate tie. And it's very potent. It's got a uh, euphoric high. It's colorful. It's a day brightener. 
Um, your shittiest day will be happy. Um, you'll, you'll feel a lot better. It's colorful. It can be really intense at first, but they kind of, it lightens up a little bit, but it is a wonderful high. It's very resinous. It's got a, a, a sickly sweet smell and taste to it. It's divine, but it doesn't look like much. Um, when you're growing it, it looks like it, it's not impressive, not at first, but as it further goes into flower, uh, it becomes more impressive as it goes. But when you're first growing it, um, even in veg and midway through flower, it's just not, it's just not an impressive plant. Like a lot of lines, you know, a lot of lines, you go like, Oh, I know that's going to be great. <laughs> but um, not all plants are like that. You know, you can't judge a book by its cover. Um, and that's a very impressive line. Unfortunately, a lot of people, you know, uh, think, Oh, it, it's not a pure line, but um, in Thailand, there's hybridization done. There's, growth there's there's lowland varieties there's highland varieties um you know there is um bottlenecking of varieties there's so many things that go on with plants that some of this has been done in the past and people look at it and go oh there's some modern characteristics to it um especially if grown indoors so if you see um a plant grown indoors it may look you know kind of like a modern plant but if you took that same plant and put it outdoors, the environment, the sun, the wind, everything will make it look more like it should. You'll see these, you know, very tall, upright, high looking plants that are kind of, you know, bamboo like, um, or, uh, you know, uh, Japanese maple looking, you know, the, the different structures outdoors really brings out what a plant should look like indoors. It's a controlled environment. You're only getting one aspect of what that plant really could be unfortunately. And then people are flowering out these plants with different light sources. If you're using LEDs, plants end up being more chunky, shorter, and uh, they, they branch out differently. Um, if you're using fluorescence, they kind of, um, you know, will branch out, look, you know, pretty good. Uh, they just won't be as dense. Using a metal halide and they get very resinous and good plants. If using HPS, they get very, uh, you know, squat and branchy. Um, it, 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 just, it just depends on the light source you're using uh, for the looks of these plants. Um, not only that, um, indoor versus outdoor, um, you know, it all matters. Uh, and the, the length of time. A lot of people are using too much light to grow their plants. They think, oh, more light, the better. That's not necessarily true. These plants are like humans. There's circadian rhythms. They need you know, the darkness and the light, they need sleep. They need to have that restorative sleep where they produce you know, these um, precursors to create cannabinoids or, you know, these things that protect themselves from, you know, pests or whatever it might be. Um, they're, they're created when they sleep. So they need a, a, a dark period. So you can't use like 24 hours of light and think they're going to be okay. Um, you know, resting the plants will actually be uh, improving uh, on the plants. So you have to have the right ratio. You can't have too much darkness, you can't have too much light. Um, you have to have something right in the middle. So that's why um, I've developed ratios of light and darkness. So 10 and a half hours of light and 13 and a half hours of darkness is kind of like the sweet spot for most all varieties around the world. So if you want something that'll work for everything, that ratio will work for flowering for everything. And especially if you're doing it from seed, if you're starting off that way, even better. Um, if veg to seed, uh, anyway, if, I, I can give people breakdowns. Uh, I've written uh, documentation for anybody that's wanting this. Uh, if they want to um, contact me by email. That's incredible. I'm going to have to look more into it myself. 
I would like to ask, so sort of based on what you were saying there, what's your thoughts on autos? Given they don't get uh, much darkness, do you think they'll ever be able to get to a point where they're comparable? Because people espouse that as the aspiration. Do you think it is possible for auto flowering cannabis to be like, say, as good? Yeah. Um, hmm. Auto flowering. Uh, yeah. And, you know, they're, they're, it's just a hybrid. They're using something that flowers. Early, it's an early flowering hybrid. Uh, auto flowering is kind of a mis, misnomer. You don't want to use a lot of stuff that's hemp variety autoflowers. They're basically using stuff that's uh, flowering early, so photosensitive varieties. Um, so you can take anything that's photosensitive and make it grow well as long as they're you know using good breeding practices. It just depends. Sure. Uh, so what, one of the common questions we got from a lot of different listeners, in fact, was they were wondering if they could get some advice because a lot of people want to try to grow some of these like really wild stuff, but I, but they're indoors and they're like, how do I do it? You know, like I want to do it. I just don't know if it's possible. Do you have any tips? Absolutely. So one of the problems is that a lot of these like books and stuff that people buy is, Oh, uh, you take a, a plant and you basically veg it for a few days and then you flower it right away. That way they're shorter. The problem is that's not good because you don't have enough roots that can deal with stress. And if you want to grow something, you need to veg the plant long enough to grow roots. So grow when you're growing a plant, grow the roots, train the plants. So by doing that, uh, making you know more main stems by topping it, forcing the oxygen to create more roots. If you can kind of put some focus on the roots first by doing that and then repotting them, you know, pull off the bottom of the pot, look at the roots. Use beer cups at first that are clear so you can see the root development. Um, you know, examine the roots, kind of make sure that the soil isn't overly moist and wet. Use a moisture meter, you know, check the plant, you know, check this, the, the container several different places. Make sure that it's, you know, dry enough to actually water because a lot of people overwater and then there's no root development. It, it stunts the plants and it pisses the plants off where they herm on you um and uh, mold and then die so the problem is uh, root development grow those roots first and then flower them out and then if you have the right ratio uh, you can save several weeks on these long flowering varieties so if you're doing what a lot of these magazines magazines and books will tell you to flower 12 on 12 off you may never ever finish your plant or it will take forever to finish because that light regimen doesn't isn't uh in nature it's not something that happens on earth you know there's no 12 hours of light and 12 hours of darkness anywhere on the planet so why would you do that in an in indoor grow it doesn't make any sense um so basically you have to have the right ratio so if you use um you know the right amount of darkness you can flower plants faster and and sex them faster so if you're vegging plants and then growing the roots you can sex them and then revert it back to your veg period. So you can sex your plants, know which males, females you have. Then you can either clone the ones that you like um, or grow those plants into the plants that you want to a certain size. Or you, you kill the plants that you don't want and then pop more seeds if you need more of a certain type or more numbers or males of a certain type. That's a killer, killer overview. I'm really keen. I was going to say I noticed... Um your strain Epic Haze. It sounds incredible. Do you do anything different when you have those ultra-long flowering types? Or again, same thing, just expect it to end up a little bigger. 
majority of the plants will finish in 14 to 16 weeks. Even some of the longer flowering varieties will finish in 16 weeks, which is not so bad. There will be longer flowering varieties that will take longer. Um, you can always take things earlier, but patience, um, you know, why grow something for eight or nine weeks uh, that will finish better in, in 14 weeks? Um, why take something earlier if, if the quality is not there? Um, you'll find that uh, something like a Colombian that grows, you know, for 20 to 26 weeks in a greenhouse, you know, finishes in March or April outdoors, meaning like it takes a whole year of growth and then flowering to finish. It will finish indoors uh, faster because you're able to manipulate the lights. Um, but if you're using a greenhouse, those last few months, the colors will come out. The the reds, the oranges, the purples, all those, that beauty in the line will actually present themselves. The resins that take long weeks to grow will, will be um, more present. So you get these um, turpin and cannabinoid profiles that are just amazing psychedelic and very great expressions of cannabis, you know, very delectable connoisseur herb. Um, but if you harvest it too early, you won't get those expressions. The other issue is you need to know the variety. Some varieties will finish faster than others. And if you wait too long, then it's um, oxidized and you have more of an inferior product. Like some Mexicans will finish fast. Um, you know, once they have the peak THC content, you know, the trichomes are fully developed you should harvest the Mexicans because a lot of times if you wait too long, then it starts to oxidize and then they kind of get dried out and, you know, loses its quality. So uh, you just need to know the variety. And um, if you have the right variety, then you, you need to harvest earlier at peak concentration or you, you wait the time it needs to finish to, to get the best qualities out of it. You just, it just depends on what time you're, you're willing to put into it. And then, grow the variety that you're willing to put in that time. You know, if you're not willing to put in 20, 24 weeks, don't get a pure Colombian. Um, you know, some Colombians will finish faster, um, but majority won't, you know, these equatorial lines are at the equator. They're not as photosensitive as something that is, uh, grown in the Hindu Kush. Um, but Mexico is kind of something that's more northerly, higher latitude and will finish faster, but it's also longer flowering, but you know, may, may finish in, yeah, October versus December, January, February, March. Yeah, that certainly makes sense, you know, picking according to what you're willing to do, as well as all the other little amazing tidbits of info there. I guess I would love to quickly ask you, though, do you feel like you have to put any consideration into what we might broadly call the commercial viability of your strains? Because as you said, you know, people need to go into this sort of knowing what they're getting into. Does that ever hold you back or do you feel like you just make what you want and, you know, let it go? Well, I don't pick strains that are uh, fast flowering. I'm not picking strains to finish fast, though there will be strains that will finish faster. Um, I'm picking for quality and potency above all else. So those, those are my, my criteria. So if a person's coming with to me that they want a, a seven or eight or nine week strain, I'm going to have some things I could show them, but they're going to be limited if their constraints are the time frame, because the best qualities take a little bit longer. And if you're constrained to like needing to harvest something in eight to nine weeks, then you need to probably look somewhere else because 
you know, I'm not choosing things to finish fast. I'm choosing for quality and potency. And those take a little time typically. You're not to say that you can't find those faster phenotypes. And there are varieties that will finish faster. Um, just majority of the quality uh, phenotypes take longer. That's just the nature of things. Certainly, certainly. So if someone were to take a look at sort of your overall back catalogue of work, to me it seems obvious that there's a, a more of a predominance of sativas than indicas. Is this a reflection of just your personal sort of preferences in regards to flavor effect things like that or is it more a case of like just the stock you're working with and you know other factors well the majority of them is sativas because there's more sativas tropicals equatorials than there is indicas it's just that's the world there's just more of that than there are these other kind uh and the reason why i'm working for certain varieties is i'm trying to preserve varieties that may be lost so I'm putting more emphasis on Mexicans, Hawaiians, uh, Colombians, that the seed stock is in short supply. It takes a long time to grow these lines and they're almost lost. So I'm trying to save these lines. So my, my focus may not be on exactly what I want to grow, uh, but I'm trying to preserve it for the future. Um, so that's where my focus is at. Otherwise, I'd, I'd be growing a lot of these faster flowering varieties and pumping them out and trying to make a lot of money. Um, which would be nice, but I'm trying to preserve these lines that take longer because uh, if I don't, they're going to be lost. Um, and unfortunately, because they take longer, um, instead of popping out something that I could grow within a short period of time and, you know, make a thousand, couple thousand seeds, hundreds of thousands of seeds, you know, in a quick period of time, I'm taking, you know, years to grow something that may not produce very much. Um, and that's where people don't understand is, is that you're unfamiliar with how long and how much work it takes to create these lines, um, that there's a lot of time involved, not just the flowering, you know, there's a selection process, the growing, the vegging, um, and uh, you're just not making as much seed and it takes a lot longer to grow. So, you know, things take longer, they, they cost more because it takes a lot more to produce them. Certainly, that makes sense. And we're all very lucky to have someone like you ensuring the preservation of these lines. I um, I have to admit, I sort of engineered that question well because I wanted to get to this next one, which was that <laughs> one, of, uh, <laughs> one of our guests asked, they said, look, you hear a lot about Afghan indicas and maybe, you know, a bit of Pakistani. He said, but you really don't hear too much about indicas in the rest of the world. And occasionally, you know, Chinese, little blip on the map, the Yuan, um, what's your experience with indicas outside of the conventional Afghan Pakistan? What's your thoughts? Unsung heroes, anything we should keep our eye out for? Oh, Lebanese should be, uh, I'd ask some of the best. Um, Lebanon, uh, has one of the oldest cannabis cultures. There was a, um, um, a temple there to, um, the, the mysteries, you know, for like wine production in the ancient past. Um, but wine in the past was used as a vehicle for preserving um, not only the alcohol, but other medicinal plants like cannabis. So they were able to take their cannabis plants and um, preserve them in wine. And um, in that area, they were able to grow um, cannabis and preserve them in the wine. And then in the winter, they were able to have their cannabis along with their wines because they weren't drinking water, they were drinking wine uh, because it wasn't safe to drink water. 
Ah, that yeah, that makes sense. That's a good point. So in, in Lebanon, they have an ancient cannabis history or, um, you know, that goes back a long. So their varieties were selected for generations in the Levant, which was like the Phoenician um, stronghold of that area. So basically that area is, um, you know, they had the ziggurats, the Sumerians, there's ancient cannabis culture. The area which is uh, the bulk region of Afghanistan was a Zoroastrian area, which isn't too far. So there's pilgrimages from other areas like Lebanon, Syria, uh, which had hash plants. Um, Egypt, they also had hash plants, Indicas. Um, you know, parts of uh, Kashmir, um, different parts of Pakistan. They all had these indica varieties. Iran uh, has the ancient Persian history. They had something similar to Soma. India had the Soma, which was uh, cannabis, but the Persians, the ancient Persians and Zoroastrians had um, the uh, Heoma, which is basically, you know, the same thing. And they had their Vedic um, type books as well. Uh, indicating, you know, this ancient uh, cannabis, um, you know, sacrament. Beautiful stuff. Yeah. So unsung uh, indicas around the world. Uh, there are indicas in different places, like Mexico uh, has hash plants. Uh, Colombia has hash plants. Um, different places around the world. So um, it just depends. China has some. Uh, the Yunnan province. Um, there's a there's a lot of variability not only due to um, its placement, but its, its um, altitude. It was a lowland variety. Um, some of them were able to um, look a certain way. And some of them, as they went up higher in elevation, they would look you know, um, differently. So lowland varieties tended to be more broad-leafed because they were trying to capture more light. Um, and then the highland ones were actually more elongated and stretchy uh, because they were getting a lot more light, they had to deal with like high winds, so they had to be able to be a bit more bendable and different things. Um, it, it it all depends, you know. Your environment plays a role on how the uh, plants acclimatize, change. Um, you know, some of these indicas may be um, uh, tolerant and resistant to uh, humidity that is from a cold, uh, dry environment or a cold humid environment or hot humid environment. So when people say, oh, this line is, um, you know, resistant to humid environment, you know, is it a hot humid or cold humid? Because if you grow the wrong thing, it'll mold real easy and you won't be able to grow certain varieties, you know, on the coast, for instance, that grew in Hawaii, uh, in California. Um, it, it just depends. So these different things of climatization matter and they affect the uh, qualities of these turpins and the way they evolved. I uh, I don't know how we're going to get there, so I'm just going to have to really bluntly put it out there. What's uh, the old school big bud like? Was it ever good, like objectively, or was it just big yielding? Oh yeah, uh, it was big quality wise. It was old school Mexican uh, Afghani, is what I figure it is. Um, the the Mexicans were large. The the early well, the stuff even up into the eighties were large plants. Um, you know, some of them would have the coles de zorro, which were, um, tails of the, the, the fox. So fox tails. So everybody's colas get, that's the name from the Mexican word for colas de zorro, uh, the fox tails, but they're only saying the tails portion, the Mexican word for it, Spanish word for it. Um, but they used to, you know, a majority of the Mexicans produced, you know, 
big bread loaf looking spears. So you have these big spear looking plants that were like candelabra style or upright, or these big Christmas trees, you know, like giant pines uh, that were 20, 30 feet tall. Um, so uh, the big bread was a crossing of some of these larger yielding Mexicans with uh, some of the um, early Afghani stuff that was coming along. Ah, okay, okay. And how come you think it died out? Um, I'm sure some people are still growing it. I had it for a little while. I lost it. But as anything, um, you know, somebody usually has it. Yeah, just hiding out. I mean, look, on the topic of someone usually has it, there's a huge push within the community to find the roadkill skunk. Do you think someone has it? Oh, yeah. I have some seeds that are old school skunk, but uh, they're old. So I'm trying to germinate those, bring them back. Um, I had roadkill skunk back in the day. Last time I had it uh, offered to me was back in the 90s, 97. Um, you know, it was on the border of Canada and Washington State. Uh, that stuff stunk so bad. It was super hashy. The joints just kept putting themselves out. And it stunk like, you know, you ran over a couple skunks. I mean, the juices like that really nasty fucking skunk and it got you really stoned it was incredible weed uh the stuff that people know is like skunk number one is it's different it's different something different um it's similar um but it's not the same thing um what i think the 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 old skunks were were mexican afghani hybrids or um you know mexican durban or something like that uh, but there was skunks before uh, the, the, the labeled skunk number one was available. Oh, and I'm working on, uh, I've got some other skunk lines. Uh, I did the fester skunk with, but I'm trying to grow out more of that. But uh, I've got some Afghanis that have the, the skunk properties. So uh, if anything, I'm going to recreate my own skunk. So that's in the works as well. Oh, exciting. Now you got me wondering, what are some of your favorite Afghanis? Oh, my God. Uh, one of my favorite is the Petrolia Headstash. Um, there, there was um, one that was, it was an Afghani line. And from the guy that created um, Harawana, he was a... Steve Tuck? No, the guy that actually did it. That Steve Tuck made the seed line, uh, reproduced it. Um, but the guy who made it was in Ukiah. Uh, California, um, but oh wow! This guy was growing Mexican um, Mexican varieties in Colorado before he came to um, uh, California, and um, <clears throat> at the time uh, the Afghani's came in, they basically killed all their uh, Mexicans that they were growing and started growing these Afghani's, which were medium-sized bush um, candelabra style bushy Afghani's that turned red and purple. Um, and he showed me pictures of these things. Um, and the, the petroleum head stash that I grew was like fruit punch, like Hawaiian fruit punch. Um, super tasty. Um, euphoric body, uh, body effects and stone and high at the same time. So it was like a clear uh, Afghani. And that was, that's what people should want. It's like a, you know, it's not a narcotic effect. It's, it's basically... You know, what people would say, like, OG Kush is like a sativa. It's like got that up high, but it's got the stone and body effects at the same time. So it's like a concert clear, um, you know, effect, which is very pleasant, euphoric. And that's kind of like what 
most Afghanis should be is like that. Um, but the petroleum head stash, uh, there's one that was done by Reefer Man, and that one isn't the same as the, the inbred line that I've had of the petroleum head stash. I think they're either two different lines or uh, that's something different or it's a hybrid of something else. Um, but the petroleum head stash that I had was like Hawaiian punch um, or fruit punch and um, just delectable. Wish I had that again. Um, anyway, that that's that's what you want is uh, one of those um, Afghani's that has that um, quality high and that you know kind of sticks out. You know, it isn't like a cloudy, stony, a narcotic drug type um, effect. Yeah, beautiful stuff. Sounds great. I wish I got to try it. I have tried heroin, or maybe not an original clone, or who knows, wasn't verified, but also some really nice stuff. Yeah, heroin is, uh, there's a lot of variations to it. And I think that's because so many people got their hands on it. So it's hard to say what's what. Uh, I think that one's Killer New Haven and the Petroleum Headstash. Um, I don't know how much of the Petroleum Headstash is really in there or which one. Um, but uh, if I can talk to the, the breeder again, maybe I'll see if he's got any original seeds. I'm supposed to bring him some special Afghanis um, that he's been looking for. So, you know, he's uh, an old head that's been in the know for a long time. So, Oh, that's very exciting to hear. Hopefully something comes with that. Oh, it, it, it will. Uh, he's easy to find. And, um, you know, he's, he's in the middle of uh, Mendocino there. So. And he's, he's not a seed producer. He doesn't, he doesn't breed, you know, most people don't even know who he is. He just, he's just a guy that um, tailors to the, the community and they wouldn't even know that he is uh, you know, old school breeder. <laughs> that's, that's the same that goes with a lot of these guys that don't seek recognition, but um, you know, they've been doing their work for years and helping out the community. Just people don't realize that they're, you know, they're doctors, they're business people, they're, you know, they're gardeners, they're different people and they're all out there. Um, and I wish they would share their stories and either share them with me or, you know, get that, you know, you know, get that story out there because a lot of this had stories to go along with it. You've really got to document it. Otherwise it just gets lost to time. Doesn't it? Right. Yeah, absolutely. And the people that should deserve, uh, you know, uh, you know, deserve credit should get the credit. Yeah. hundred percent, hundred percent. So take me back. What was your first experience with cannabis? Oh man, God, what was it? Um, God, I, I, you know, I, I think this first was like hash. Uh, my sister had hash, and I probably smoked some of her hash. That's probably when I had a first experience with mushrooms and hash. But the 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 true first variety that I had was a Colombian green that, um, my friend got it from his father, <laughs> and this Colombian green was um grown uh, indoors uh, and it was super resinous but it, it caused uh that colombian choke um and if you had this old colombian you you know because basically it, it takes the wind out of you. you smoke it and you're just coughing up a lung just um makes immense clouds of smoke um you're barely touching um you know with the flame the bud because you're you're getting through the resin profile but it's a you know it's a pure colombian um <laughs> and uh, man it was it was some incredible stuff that was just so potent after a couple hits you're just uh 
you're just kind of, uh, you don't want anymore, but you're just so high that it's, it's, it's incredible. Um, that was some Colombian green and that was like the first variety that I had other than Mexican varieties, which were plentiful and many, um, and all that was brown bud. And when I saw the green bud for the first time, <laughs> I didn't even know what that was. Um, I was like, wow, that's some green bud. That's some cool looking stuff. And then, um, the brown bud is what, you know, I, I was majority familiar with brown or red or had different hair colors. Um, you know, green bud and brown bud was the majority of what I grew up on. And when the killer green buds came in with the Afghanis, um, that was something different. And those, there was a lot of, uh, variation. Some of them were good. Some of them were so hashy that, uh, they were uh, acerid and, and off-putting. Um, because there was no selection and they were getting all these land race Afghanis and um, you know, they were just trying to find, you know, the, the good ones to grow, but we were getting like, you know, everything. <laughs> and some of them were not always good. You know, if you're doing selection, some of them are got perfumey and sensi, acerid, skunky. Uh, those acerid ones uh, were just super hashy, not tasty, uh, very hard to consume. Um, but you know, that's, that's what happens when you're, you know, doing selection. Some of them are great, some of them are good, and some of them are kind of off. There you go. And so, what was the progression from sort of that experience to thinking, I want to start growing? Uh, I started growing the Mexican seeds that I used to get. So, um, I used to dig holes in the backyard and the, the bag seed I would get for the Mexican varieties because my cousins were Mexican and we used to get different lots from their cousins. So, all their different cousins and family were bringing different types of Mexican weed up from Mexico, um, you know, visiting family members. So I'd grow it out in the backyard. Um, we're in Northern California, you know, 14 miles away from Mendocino County. Um, it was a perfect climate. And then I dig, um, holes in the hill and then I take, um, greenhouse roofing, which was semi-clear and laid across the ground. And I dig big holes. So I was doing these greenhouses that were in the ground. So as a helicopter, a camp helicopter would come by and look down, all this thing is like, you know, trash or, you know, uh, greenhouse, you know, stuff that's just on the ground or in piles. And they wouldn't realize there's, you know, being plants being grown underground in like holes. So I was um, a grill, a hole grower. grower. <laughs> <laughs> and that was my first uh, growing experience of these varieties. Some of them would be above ground, but... Uh, I did a lot of stuff indoors or uh, in the ground for a while. And then I did, uh, I grew on a roof. Um, growing plants on a roof was kind of sketchy because um, of planes. Uh, but I tried to put them near trees or something like that to kind of avoid them. But they were Mexican, so they were pretty tall. And other ones we'd grow next to pine trees and they would get uh, the size of pine trees, um, you know, within a, a small amount of time. You know, with the hot California sun, things would get really quick. Uh, get, really tall really quick and so you know one week you'd walk by the plant and it's a couple feet tall the next week and it's freaking you know 15 20 feet tall <laughs> with uh you know branches that as long as a human you know 14 feet long distance so these things get just as wide as they get tall uh they're they're massively uh, crazy big and uh I, I miss those things i need to find those old mexicans like that that's really interesting to hear how you did it back in the day. Do you remember when the first sort of uh, brand name strains started rolling out, like strains with names, or uh, was it sort of a progression? Yeah. 
Well, I, in high times, I remember, uh, you know, there was in ties and Mexicans, Durbin's, there was you know, those type of brand names. Brand names were like Durban poison. Um, I think skunk was known. Uh, I don't think Northern lights and that stuff hadn't been around yet. Not till later. Um, there was, there was Hawaiian, there was Maui, Waui, um, there was Panama red, Acapulco gold. Um, Colombian was colors. A lot of stuff was colored weed. So there was, you know, there was Mexican red, there was red hair. There was, um, uh, you know, Colombian green, there was Colombian brown, there was Colombian gold. Uh, there was Thai chocolate Thai. Uh, things had names or places where it came from. That was the majority of what stuff was coming on. When there was like, you know, seed lines, the stuff in the seed banks started coming around. Um, you know, I think Northern Lights, Skunk, I think those ones were the first ones that came out. Um, Northern Lights with Skunk, Haze, Skunk, you know, Northern Lights. I think there was all combinations of the same stuff. I think the first... Um, uh, like cannabis cup brought some of those seeds being sold over here. I, you know, I, I don't remember too much. It was all, uh, tutti fruity names. People made up, you know, that was, it was, but the seeds, the seed blind seed bank stuff. I don't remember until later on. In those early days, were there any breeders who you sort of looked up to or were you so insular that like you just hadn't even heard of them? No, it, back then it was so, uh, everybody was so paranoid that, um, you know, no, you had to like have family members and know people within the family to like get anything. It was really paranoid, um, very stringent, um, you know, anti-cannabis laws. And you, you know, you didn't want to be busted with anything at that time. Um, you know, uh, so everybody kept to themselves. There was really a, you know, a lot of paranoia. Everybody's a snitch. Um, you know, people got busted for, you know, seeds and stems and, <laughs> Uh, not a whole lot. So, um, no, a lot of people just try to keep to themselves or they get busted. You know, if you, if you didn't know anything, you couldn't tell anybody. Yeah. Yeah. Very much understandable given the harsh penalties. So I guess I'm wondering, A, how did you get the name Snow High? And B, when did you decide you wanted to start sort of formally breeding and giving your seeds out? Oh man. Um, this name, this name Snow High came out. My friend, uh, Dustin, um, and I, he was growing the snow cap. He got, um, one of the first clones out of Fort Bragg when the growers of Mendocino were done growing it and no one else was growing it in Lake County. Um, so when I was, uh, came online in the early two thousands, um, it was just the strain that he had been growing that, um, I was selling down here and, uh, I just used the name to see how many people were familiar with the strain to see how prolific it was around and not many people had known about it not at that time uh so it just happened to be the name i used as at the time with the set the strain i was selling which was a really tasty good strain uh, at least the first um version of it that came out because it, it soon became hybridized and the taste and everything went downhill but the the real true snow cap was mentholated minty menthol uh candied um, you know, wintergreen type uh, smell and taste and flavor, you know, tropical candy. It was 
very tasty and resinous, uh, had a great, fantastic high, um, and grew nice big spears and just, you know, it was a, it was a good, good plant, but, um, it was really good at being, um, able to deal with humidity and, uh, mold. So people were growing it in Fort Bragg. Um, my father's uncle or cousin was growing it in the town of Mendocino and the, the fog bank was so thick and Mendocino, the town of Mendocino, that the plants were dripping with, um, with condensation, just dripping because the sun was blocked out. You could barely see the sun because it was like a little ring of, you know, a little bit of light, but it was so thick with haze and uh, moisture on the coast of Mendocino because it's right on the coast of Northern California with all the redwoods. Um, but these plants, these um, snowcap hybrids were growing under like pure condensation. And you know, he was taking a bleach water solution, spraying the plants. And that's how he was able to grow with like almost no light. It was amazing. But those hybrids became more uh, prevalent. And the majority of people that got what they thought was like um, snowcap was this hybridized version. It kind of the real stuff kind of wasn't available to people. Ah. Anyway, that's the snow high was basically uh, snow cap, and then um, me saying snow high. I guess I I, don't know, I, sh- I just adapted the snow high, snow cap, snow high thing, and then uh, Bodhi convinced me to um, to sell seeds. I was basically you know selling to the clubs and doing my own preservation work and you know doing stuff for fun, um, and my family's homes were uh, being. You know, the, the banks were trying to collect from them. Uh, family went through some uh, times where they weren't in the hospital and weren't able to work. Uh, so I tried to save my family's um, properties by selling herb. And I did that for a few years. So that kind of got me into selling the herb to save the homes, um, which I was able to do. And then uh, seed stuff just kind of evolved with that as well. But mainly came to a place of a fun and uh, trying to do preservation. Beautiful, beautiful. And is there a difference between legendary genetics and snow high seeds? Well, uh, legendary genetics was supposed to be for uh, California and snow high for the rest of the world. Um, when the uh, you know clubs went legal, the problems with COVID, COVID kind of destroyed all the, the business that was going to be done and established at the time. So a lot of... Um, the work that Bodie, uh, Kagyu and Coastal Seeds, and, and myself, we were going to be uh, in the clubs in California. Um, unfortunately, COVID happened right when we were getting into all these clubs, but the clubs went out of business. All the seed stock that went into these places was lost. Uh, so all that time, money, and effort was lost. Um, but there the was supposed to be a... a a separation of the two so uh, we could do something here in california um and then something for the world that was already done previous to that unfortunately covid destroyed a lot of stuff and um trying to uh get back to uh work is uh, a work in progress you know a lot of people have had to do that you know start over you know deal with their losses unfortunately i've had health problems um, along the way as well. So it's a double whammy when you're not well and trying to do things that, um, you know, take effort. So 
One of the questions we got submitted quite a fair bit from the viewers across both Instagram and Patreon was that they were wondering, these days, how do you source new genetics? Do you find it's becoming increasingly more difficult to find good sources for stock? No. Um, I've always been the type that I help out my friends and my friends help me. Um, so I try to good, be good to people and then people are also good to me. So, um, it's kind of a karma thing. Um, you know, if you're just trying to do, uh, your intentions are good. Um, you know, you should get something back with the good intentions. Um, so I don't find it hard to find new genetics, but it's also, there's a lot of genetics that just need to be preserved already that still need work. Um, so there's not, there's, there's no time to lose. There's a lot of work to be done and not enough time to do it. Sure. So in general, would you advocate that people should be open to the idea of like maybe traveling to some of these native zones where land races come ro- from and sort of doing their own little expeditions? Or do you feel like overall it's, it's probably too diluted and like maybe hard to find real stuff? It depends on what kind of person you are. Um, some places that are in a- you know, historically cannabis producing places have been dangerous for some people. And depending on your level of um, danger, uh, your ability to deal with diseases, um, lack of food, uh, lack of services um, may affect your ability to go and get some of these things. Um, other times you can, you can go on a trip and find certain things, but it just depends on um, how you're trying to source things. Are you trying to get it from a reseller or are you trying to go directly to the grower up in the hills? Um, sometimes going directly to the, the hills won't work because they've already sold what they had to the resellers that sell them at the beach, say in Mexico. So if you go to the highlands of Oaxaca, you may not find anything there because they've already sold everything that has been sold at, you know, uh, the, the local beaches. Um, and then, the, the cartels are something to deal with because, you know, you could end up with uh, your body's head cut off or something like that because you're in the wrong place. Um, it's a, it just depends on the country, uh, the place you're trying to go. Um, yeah, uh, but I mean, a lot of these, there's a lot of countries and a lot of places that a lot of the, the varieties are disappearing. So if you are historically trying to help these people, uh, documentation, um, and, and helping them is a way that people could, could do it. You know, um, we're trying to figure out ways of doing Some people are trying to help the, the people by providing, you know, vegetable seeds and, um, a way to sell those, uh, the, those foods and try to make something for those communities so they can be preserved. Um, unfortunately, a lot of, um, cannabis producing areas have gone to like poppies or other things because, um, they're just trying to survive because of drought, uh, because of the, um, the laws, um, or the, the racism that's gone on that kills like indigenous peoples. Um, uh, so we, we need to say what's here before it's lost because every year things are lost. Even a few years ago, uh, certain places that are producing cannabis aren't producing cannabis anymore, you know? Um, so there's, there's, there's a lot of loss and these people need help and their history needs to be preserved. So, um, I say you, you could go to certain places. Absolutely. Um, but um, sometimes you may go and be going to a place that 
you're not going to be able to find anything anyway. So you need to do your homework and, um, there's got to be ways that we could actually help each other and help these indigenous peoples. Um, so I think eventually we're working with like-minded people around the world. Uh, we can help out these communities a little bit better. Um, and maybe like a global seed bank, which the, the funds will actually trickle down to the people that actually should get it. Not just the people at the top. Do you think that something like that will happen or it might be like difficult to sort of get people on board? No, I, I, I think it should happen and it could happen. Um, it just has to have the right people involved. Yeah. I'd be interested to hear your thoughts on the recent legalization by the Thai government. I've often sort of in recent weeks sat and wondered to myself if there would be like a resurgence in sort of Thai terroir produced land race and, and like if the quality of it would be any good or do you suspect like, you know, people over there are just going to grow like modern, you know, stuff. It depends. I mean, the terroir type stuff would be beneficial and it'd be good for the people uh, along the borders. But then you have the indigenous people that were, you know, growing these varieties to begin with. Um, They've been forced from place to place anyway um, for hundreds of years. So um, there should be protection for these people and there should be uh, ability, ability for these people to grow some things. But if they're growing hemp on an island, uh, and, you know, and destroying the, the, the lines that were indigenous to that area or acclimatized to that area, um, it's going to be like counter defeating the, the issue. But, you know, like anything, the people that are going to be able to grow these varieties, are usually the ones that have money. Um, so it, it's a tough thing. It, it should be kind of like um, a protection as well as um, like a historical type thing where we have to preserve the knowledge of the people as long with the strains, because it's like, um, you know, it's like growable history, these varieties. Um, so there should be protection and, uh, the legalization will impart good things and bad things. It always does. Yeah. I'm certainly interested to see how it plays out. It'll be, um, it'll be really cool to see if they started pumping out like some, like really intentionally farmed tire, land race like what a, what a treasure that would be well i'm actually trying to work with some of the people there um that are there now on you know things like that as we speak so some of the stuff i'm growing right now is from some of the resurgence of the tie lines there preservation ties uh, analyzing them so that is being worked on um i hope that we can do more of it and then make it so that they are preserved and not just you know, it's just a, a, a grab for genetics because uh, it's more important than just the genetics. It's the people, it's the history. There's, there's more to it. And um, I hope to, to be able to help some of that as, if possible. Yeah, look, I'm sure you're going to have a monumentally positive impact in it all. Out of curiosity, would you look to go in there and want to sort of try to use the tie that's there that might be available or would you want to bring in like some of your own stuff that you think oh this may not even exist there anymore well there's there's always that so i think there's enough tie varieties there that they have enough but there might be a few that maybe need to be reintroduced but the majority of stuff they already have it um some places around the world i've tried to introduce stuff that's been lost like in, in mexico a lot of the varieties that they once had needed to be re- reintroduced. So I've tried to um, send seeds to places that um, 
these varieties originally came from and try to get them re-established in the property. The same thing with wine varieties. I've been trying to send uh, Hawaiian lines to people in Hawaii to get them to grow these lines again. Um, I don't know if it's um, naive or not, but um, you know, hopefully the, there'll be some kind of resurgence for these varieties being grown in a place of origin. Hawaii is kind of like not the same thing, but um, the idea is to bring back old varieties like gold and the Guerreros and the mutual cons and have them grown by the people that have lost them. Some of them have tried to get them out of the country to save them because the cartels have basically forced them to stop growing uh, these varieties. Um, but they, they're trying to get them out to preserve them or protect them. Um, the cartels are usually like young kids, like, you know, 12, 13, 16 year olds all messed out. And, you know, they create like, their own gangs like Zetas and stuff. A lot of these are just young kids, um, unfortunately. And they, they they get all methed out and they go attack other, you know, groups and kill each other. And they get savage because they've been on meth for so many weeks and months. Um, but they also destroy, you know, the canvas production. And then they go to poppies or something else that's, you know, quick to make money, unfortunately. But these, these lost lines need to be reintroduced and saved. Um, and I think the only way to do it is to kind of, reproduce them somewhere else and then bring it in. And then hopefully when things have stabilized somewhat, you know, have it spread to more of these farmers and that should be done in Thailand and other places, but uh, some of it should be maintained and, you know, you shouldn't be bringing in things, you know, um, like if you're on a strain hunting uh, safari, you shouldn't be bringing your hybridized Dutch varieties and giving it to the locals because it just pollutes the uh, gene pool. I'm I'm so glad you touched on that because that was going to be the next question about our Dutch friends. But um, I would love to quickly touch on because I we've had this discussion with a few people in the past. But someone mentioned, you know, what what do you, what are you meant to take them if you're not going to take them seeds? And you know, that's a great question. We should delve into it. Vegetable I, seeds. Well, it depends on that place. <clears throat> vegetable like in Nepal, Bodhi was trading them vegetable seeds. You know, something that they can grow. You're not bringing in invasive uh, strains you can get this the the seeds there locally um, but you're just providing more of what's already there to farmers that have you know no money or little money and you're providing something that they can grow for food um food's always something that's you know we take for granted because we have supermarkets and most places around the world they don't have supermarkets you know even in italy you have like markets but they don't have like what we do in, in the United States or in other countries where you can have these big, huge places with all these different foods and meats and availability. We just live so much higher uh, lives than a lot of people do around the world. We take for granted that, you know, seed stock of vegetables is, is you know, desirable and, and much needed and food in general. So uh, that would be one thing. It just, you find something that could be um, used by them that, you know, doesn't take up a lot of room seeds, as long as they're not um, brought in from another country and have diseases or pests, which could be negative. That's why you don't want to bring stuff from your country because you can bring invasive insects like stuff from China. If people are getting seeds from China, a lot of those have like weevils and, and mites and different things that can destroy your seeds and destroy your socks, stocks. So uh, freezing your seeds before you bring them in would be important, but you should do that for all kinds of seeds that you're bringing in from another country. Um, that's why they have these uh, sanitation certificates that you're supposed to use when importing seeds from other countries. It's important because, you know, you're bringing in pests and you could be the one that was responsible for a plague, of, you know, insects that are 
bring in that certain fungus that's killing all the different citrus fruits or uh, trees because you bought in cannabis seeds from somewhere, you know, that has this, this type of insect that has this type of mold with it, you know, or this virus. Um, it's all connected. But if you get something from that country, uh, usually safe and um, you can buy it in bulk, you know, it's not too expensive. And then you bring it to the people or you find something that you can trade with them that they want. But th those would be better things than providing genetics that um, can pollute their, what they already have. But if they have sources to, you know, uh, international genetics already, uh, they can also import them themselves. You know, uh, they can import that and dilute their, their uh, gene pool by themselves. They don't need the extra help from us. Definitely. There definitely are people out there in uh, these land race areas who are keen to grow some Californian stuff. So I guess there needs to be some acceptance of that. Just as a follow-up to the last one, if you were you know, totally relieved of all responsibilities and were totally able to go anywhere, do a land race expedition, where would you want to head off to? Well, before the, uh, the government went haywire, I, I wanted to go to Myanmar, uh, what was previously Burma. And explore uh, all that because um, there are so many uh, temples and it's quite a large country in you know between India and um, you know Southeast Asia. Uh, so it you know a lot of explored varieties could have been there, and there's some a lot of different indigenous peoples groups that are kind of you know been cut off from the rest of the world. So it's kind of like a um, what do you call it like a a time capsule, you know, these people uh, are living in decades, you know, or <laughs> hundreds of decades behind some of us in the ways. So uh, finding some interesting stuff there would have been pretty cool. Um, uh, Africa, going to the Congolese Basin countries, uh, a lot of that stuff has been uh, pretty, um, pretty hard to get into. And uh, as far as the diseases and uh, just the unruliness of the gorilla type, um, you know, armies in there. Uh, it's, it's really a, a hard place to get into. A lot of that's been kind of um, strange because the Belgian people had gone there and tried to take over the Congo years ago and they had uh, hemp varieties. So there's a lot of hemp varieties that were escaped cultivars into the Congolese, Congo and the Congolese basin countries that surround it. Uh, so a lot of people that think these, there's indigenous sativas there, some of it might be uh, escaped hemp cultivars that, um, you know, acclimatized in the environment. Um, another place would be some of the um, South African, or South American countries. Um, I definitely like to go back into Mexico. I've uh, been there a couple of times and trying to find things, but Mexico uh, would love to find some more stuff down there, down in Colombia, uh, Bolivia, Peru. Uh, that all be uh, fun places to go looking. Yes, yeah, certainly. And and you touched on, um, you know, a magical talking point, which is that I wanted to ask you about what's your opinions on the Congolese? You know, we don't see them represented too much, but they are some really special strains. What's your thoughts on them? Well, the, there is, um, there's, the, there's the pygmy peoples there. There's several different groups of pygmies that are in the Congolese basin countries. Um, and I'll, I'll, I'll make this reference in Egypt, they had their gods. And one of their gods was named Bess. Bess was a pygmy, um, dark-skinned pygmy, and he was a fertility god. And in their fertility um, vases, they would find um, cannabis residue and seeds. Now, the pygmies were from the Congolese Basin country. They weren't from, like, where Egypt was now. 
Um, so they must have seen that these indigenous pygmies were consuming uh, cannabis. Um, and they were using it for childbirthing, you know, for the pain and everything. So they were using it in the ancient past for that purpose. Um, the other people that were uh, a close relative to the pygmy people were the Kalahari bush people. And these are some of the oldest known, the oldest like people living on earth that are closest to modern humans. Um, but, you know, still a distant um, human. And these people are closest related to the pygmy people. Um, it, it seems like these uh, the Kalahari Bushmen um, have a cannabis history, um, but their their genetics go back to a very old age where it seems like they left um, Africa um, maybe 76,000 years ago up to 130,000 years ago and then went into like Southeast Asia and then back to South Africa um, during like floods of the world. Um, so we're talking about a, a time frame of like 130,000 years. Um, and then you see in their genetics, if you see a picture of a Kalahari Bushman, you see that they have Asian um, features, like from China or Laos. Um, and then I, in, in the early 90s or early 2000s, I was looking at DNA because the, they did the whole genome project. And I found that these people have... Um, Asian descent back, you know, from like 70 to 130,000 years ago. So basically the genetic testing confirmed what I saw in the pictures. Um, I also looked up the phonetic words for cannabis that were similar to these Kalahari Bushmen uh, for the same use. And I, I, I looked it up phonetically and then I looked up the pictures of these people and then I backed it up with genetic sequencing um, that they left um, Africa and then came back, um, you know, at one point, which was kind of crazy. So if you guys have time, look up the San people or the Kalahari Bushmen, and you can see that they have like Asian descent, but these are black indigenous uh, Africans. And they're supposed to be like the oldest living uh, people on earth um, that are like, you know, been in the same place, um, you know, from time immoral basically. So my thoughts are that Canvas left Africa with them or with other indigenous people and that's how it spread around the world is from Africa. And then, you know, went to the Americas, uh, went through uh, Africa, through the Middle East, up through the Khyber Pass, through Afghanistan, up and through China, up through India and Southeast Asia, and then down through Australia and then land bridges to Americas. Um, there's a lot of um, knowledge and genetics that show uh, travel during the low um, the times when the waters were lower and there was more islands that there was more, um, trans-Pacific, um, migration of peoples, like some of the people that are in Mexico kind of like, um, they look like some of the Africans from, uh, Western Africa around Senegal. Um, and these are some of like the oldest, um, Mexican peoples in the, uh, the Americas. Basically, they tracked all these old people, ancient civilizations, and found a lot of cannabis history among almost all of the ancient civilizations. And it's in the book I wrote, which I'm still trying to finish up. So there's a, a book on all this craziness as well, but it needs to be finished. Oh, wow. Any idea of when, you know, might sort of be looking to be done? Well, hopefully next year or so, but maybe sooner. It's been done, but the, the, the publisher said it was too big. 
So I separated into two books. So the first book is called uh, The Tree of Knowledge. And it, it's basically um, talks about the two, um, the trees uh, that were uh, in the Garden of Eden. One was the Tree of Knowledge and one was the Tree of Life. So I based the Tree of Knowledge being the varieties that give you um, knowledge and then the Tree of Life being the varieties that give you, um, you know, life, like, uh, you know, healing properties. So I kind of separate the two in the, the two books. Ah, okay. So sort of like psychedelics and cannabis sort of thing? Well, they're both cannabis, but more of like uh, the, the varieties that give you knowledge and the ones that kind of are, have more healing properties. So I've kind of separated like the indica hash plants into one book and like the sativas, equatorials, Mexicans, and all that into another book. So it's kind of splitting up the cannabis genome into kind of two different sections. Yeah, wow. Beautiful stuff. That's something to look forward to in the future. Hopefully, as long as my health uh, keeps up. But yes, yeah, that should be uh, something to kind of put my knowledge down on paper and kind of give people some interesting history to uh, to, to look at. Because everybody loves history as long as, as well as cannabis history. There's so much there that people are just not aware of that, it, you know, kind of highlighting some of it's kind of a cool thing to do to kind of. Definitely. And, and during your answer, you referenced, uh, you know, the, the migration of things down to Australia. What I'd be interested to know is earlier on in the interview, you also referenced Mullen Madness. What's your thoughts on Mullen Madness? And do you know if it has any relation to Old Mother Sativa or if they're quite different? You know, I don't, I haven't grown Old Mother Sativa, so I don't know. Um, but a lot of those lines were, there was a lot of Thai varieties, um, Colombians uh, that were uh, grown in Australia. So there's a lot of Southeast Asian varieties grown there. Um, so from the Mullenbunny Madness, it has a certain um, growth structure that was um, similar to uh, the, the Neville's Haze that I saw. Um, so that's why I was coming up with, you know, thinking that Mullenbunny Madness might be the source of um, like the Neville's Haze instead of it being like, um, you know, like a haze variety. And anyway, the, the Mullenbunny Madness uh, has this upright structure. I'd have to see some pictures of it. And you can see it's got a certain growth, similar to Zamal, where it's kind of like an upright plant, lots of shoots, um, lots of smaller flowers coming up from it. But it's got a certain growth look to it um, when it's flowering out, like an upright plant, um, just unique. Um, so maybe it's coming from some of the Thai varieties that, it, 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 you know, that were there. Um, but Australia's got some very good uh, varieties, you know, from the, the Thai lines, the 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 closeness to Papua New Guinea, there's a lot of varieties from Papua New Guinea. Um, the surrounding islands, uh, Malaysia, uh, there's a lot of small stuff that's you know been through Indonesia that you know because of the, the drug laws there are so stringent that not much of it gets out of there. But like Sumatra and Indonesia, Malaysia, there were some good varieties, but they don't get any um, knowledge of because of the drug laws. You know, you don't want to be caned to death. Um, not not a cool thing for smoking cannabis or having a couple seeds. Um, but there's a lot of cool stuff that, you know, Australia do the proximity has been able to get um, and create some really cool stuff. Um, and you, you look at the, the, the size of the plants that grow in Australia, the trees, the trees have so much growth with the eucalyptus and some of the other trees that grow so large and so fast that cannabis that grows there also has some of those effects. Uh, so acclimatizing stuff to Australia and then growing them elsewhere would be a great thing for uh, some of the cannabis breeders because of just the the, the environment um, of Australia. 
Yeah, beautiful. You heard it, guys. Buy some of my seeds. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, just kidding around. We've got a nice uh, pool of fan-submitted questions here, but before we get into them, I wanted to ask you this one. It might be hard. Maybe should have given it to you earlier to think about, but how would you rank the overall hierarchy of hazes? And when I say that, I mean, heck, you could just say, like, Colombian at the top or something, but you know what I mean? For all the people who say they like haze, what's the hierarchy for you? What's the number one, and then how would you sort of rank them? Oh, that's a really tough question. Um, I don't know if I can answer it, uh, honestly, because uh, I just, I love, I love them all. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's that's a good answer as well. You know, and and depending on the phenotype or the plant, you know, they could be a little bit different or something special. I uh, especially like the purple haze um, phenotypes. Um, I like the, um, the profile, the turpins, because they have this like, uh, this port wine, you know, this grapey port liqueur, um, turpin profile, which kind of, um, is like a blackberry port wine liqueur, um, aroma and taste. But, uh, the high is, um, luxurious, transcending, uh, mind expanding psychedelic. Um, and it, it just, the flavors and taste just, uh, you know, make it luxurious and the effects it, it just amazing. Um, yeah, it, it's hard to say. I think um, the old timers hazes, which is not like real haze, but it's you know like a haze. Those Colombians are very special. Um, but some of the hazes that were uh, like original haze are very good too. But it's a different type of effect. But they're also very special. It, it, it just depends. Sorry for the shitty answer, guys. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's fine. Totally understandable. I did notice in your catalog you had uh, the black raspberry haze. It sounded pretty interesting. Can you tell me a little more about it? Okay. Well, the black raspberry haze, it was uh, it was just called black raspberry at one time, but I didn't realize Bodhi had um, a black raspberry. Uh, he had named his right before mine, so I put the haze because it has the purple tie nevels haze in it. Um, it's basically the Maduro, which is Oregon Purple Tie line braid uh, done by um, RC Colas in, in Canada. And he basically uh, bred the Oregon Purple Tie traits out and made them more uh, you know, uh, forward in the line. And he, he grew the line out of um, a Blue Moonshine and then another Oregon Purple Tie variety um, and then pulled out the traits. So Maduro is an Oregon purple tie dominant, um, variety. And I used, um, a couple phenotypes for that and they turned purple and blue and red, um, when I was growing them. And those were the mothers I used for the black raspberry haze. And then the male I chose, um, was the one that has the purple, um, tricones on the, the sepals. So the male flowers that have the little pollen sacs had uh, standing trichomes, uh, which is not too usual for a male, and they were purple coloration of the resin glands. Um, and I use that male on the Maduro line. So it's Oregon purple tie uh, with the Neville's Haze purple tie male line. Um, so it's an F3 Neville's Haze with the purple tie and the Oregon purple tie. So it's a real special tie Neville's Haze line. And, um, the, 
black raspberry haze um, grows into these pink and uh, purple red um, colored buds. So you get these nice pink purple buds, but the resins that extracted from it have that color too. They retain that color. So extracts will have this like raspberry, um, you know, raspberry color, uh, like um, Chambord, you know, that raspberry liqueur has that color yep. to the extracts. So you can make extracts that have this raspberry uh, color to it. And it makes a wonderful, uh, awesome high and the tasty, um, delectable, sweet candied, um, like raspberry taste. Um, that it's got that nice haze high. It's wonderful. Um, one person said it was the best high he ever smoked. Um, I said, thank you. You know, it's nice. Um, but the, the color and the special trichome resins that it produces is very special. So it's, it's a very good line to have in order to smoke great for breeding, great for smoking. And it's one of those you want to keep to yourself and share with special friends. <laughs> I love it. Sounds right up my alley. Uh, just while we're talking about the backstory of hazes quickly, I know that this one's not made by you, but I, I have a feeling you might be able to give me a bit of the backstory. But can you tell me about the metal haze? You know, there's not a ton of information about the backstory and you have used it for a few different things. What's your thoughts on it? Well, metal haze was done by Dutch flowers. Um, it's a very potent line. Uh, there was, you know, a couple phenotypes. Um, the phenotype that I got was one selected by the Rev. Uh, he got the seeds from my friend Four Dragons, um, and he got them from the the auctions. And there wasn't many packs sold, so there wasn't much metal haze that was actually available. Unfortunately, uh, Rev only um, selected the one female, and then you know, culled the rest. Uh, so there wasn't any to breed with. I tried to take some F2 metal haze that I had to breed with F1, but all I had was um, uh, females. I never got a male. So I wasn't able to breed the F2s to the F1. Um, so the metal haze, when I've looked at it and grown it out um, and seen the expressions through recessives, it looks like it's supposedly supposed to be a mix of uh, a bunch of their sativas or haze plants that they were growing under metal halide uh, lights. Um, but what I saw from growing it out, it, it looks like it's got Mexican um, Punto Rojo in there from the leaf structures. So I think some of the, the metal haze, um, the special parts that is uh, Mexican Punto Rojo, but that's just my uh, interpretation of the leaves and uh, you know, some of the aspects they get from the stems and the coloration. And that's just from, you know, years of growing different varieties. I could be off, but that's what it looks like to me. So, um, yeah. So I have one called Dr. Doom, which is the metal dragon, which is the metal haze with the Burmese, um, and purple Vietnamese, which is the lot purple uh, phenotype, which is Vietnamese with Vietnam black. And, um, the Mexican Punta Rojo traits seem to be pretty dominant in that. Um, and it's going to be fantastic. Uh, I got some growing this year, so it's going to be, can't wait till those are done. <laughs> love it sounds good uh we'll move on to the uh the fan submitted questions before we finally wrap up with the final five we give people the first one we got is a good one someone must be paying a lot of attention because i didn't even know about this but they said can you ask snow high if he can tell us a little bit about some of the rare hemp seeds he has specifically i think he has some fujian uh fujian it's a there's a province in china uh there it's not Fiji. It's from, uh, it's a province in China. Um, 
yeah, I've got a lot of different hemp strains. Honestly, I've got uh, maybe 120 different hemp strains. Yeah, a lot of them from China, a lot of them from, you know, um, uh, Hungary, Romania, um, some from the Congo, um, some from, uh, you know, uh, all the different uh, Russia. I have stuff from Siberia, um, um, Mongolia um you name it i've got a lot of different hemp up in, all the way to like italy so there's southern italian varieties there's um um slovenian slovakian there's czech there is um french um spanish um there's latvian there is um yeah it, basically i've got a, a, a lot of different turkish all these different hemp varieties and uh, even i have some from north korea wow you managed to get them yeah these were collected um in the 1950s um or before the right before the korean war i have two varieties and they need to be preserved because uh they may be getting unviable at this point but um I, yeah i was trying to do um a, a preservation of hemp varieties as well because I think I like all cannabis and can there's so many different uh, things we could do for the world with them, uh, you know, as far as medicine or, um, you know, supplements or uh, building materials, um, plastics. I mean, there's so much and these hemp varieties will be uh, just as valuable as, you know, these drug producing varieties. Um, not only that, you could have, um, you know, disease resistance in some of these hemp varieties that may be lost in some of these, I know, drug varieties and that you can incorporate some of those resistances um, and pest resistances into these, you know, drug types that might be favorable to certain places of the world. Or we can produce a hemp variety that will grow in a tropical place. Unfortunately, um, heat tends to make even drug cultivars, um, I mean, hemp cultivars into um, like ganja uh, because the heat it changes the the environment the it acclimatizes to the environment and then it produces thc wow like what happened in the congo with the uh, belgian varieties wow that's that's really cool to hear i hadn't really heard that expressed before there you go so one of the next questions we got is uh someone says right now from sort of the the menu the current offerings that snow high has what's his favorite and why oh my goodness um too many favorites, but one of my favorites right now is for a long time is called the devil's tit. Um, basically when I first smoked the parents, uh, the devil came to me, whispered in my ear and told me what to call it. Um, <laughs> devil's tit is Durban poison. It was from a, a, a clone from Mendocino that I got from, um, the guy that was an old breeder that, uh, bred heroina. Um, he, he didn't have that, but he, his friends had the Durban that I got it from. So <clears throat> associate of that person. Anyway, uh, this Durban poison was uh, some of the most potent herb I've smoked to date. Um, it turns purple, has orange hairs, red stems, and the, the devil's tail has imparted those properties. Um, extracts from it are so powerful. Like I've been in fetal positions because I've, it's been just too strong. Um, and I've heard that from a lot of people that this is too potent for a lot of people. Um, you know, and that, that's not necessarily a bad thing. You smoke less and, and sometimes 
you know, you just need to dose yourself a little bit less and you're fine. Uh, the euphoric effects, the, the taste is like strawberry lemonade or cherry chapstick, or there's a skunk phenotype as well. Um, all very uh, rich in turpins and um, THC doesn't seem to be too high in that, in the test results. So there's something else in that that makes it extremely potent. I don't know if it's THCV or what it is, but something in the devil's tit um, makes it very, very potent. Um, and not all lab tests are conclusive because, uh, you know, when I was testing things at the Emerald Cup, they weren't testing for THCV and some other things. So this is a problem with a lot of labs. They don't always test for everything, uh, unfortunately. But um, that was one of my favorites because it's um, there, there's some faster phenotypes. Um, it yields well. It's got, you know, the the looks and smells and tastes, everything wants, and it's it's got the potency beyond, and it's got a quality to it that's very unique. Um, it can be a roller coaster, but it's a fun roller coaster. <laughs> I love that description. That's beautiful. The next question we have is someone wants to know, what strain do you have that's got the most unique terpenes? And as a follow-up, what sort of terpene profiles are you most interested in at the moment? Oh, wow. Um, unique terpenes. There is a Mexican variety um called El Primo, which is a Mexican Punto Rojo. It is, uh, it's got what I believe it's got this, um, the simple turpin profile that is a fuel like aroma profile. Um, but it's, it's basically what I think when people smell the chem lines, they smell this simple turpin profile and that's what they love out of it. It's like the unadulterated mixed up what they love out of the chem lines. It's got that fuely smell, but it's not, it's not a sour diesel or any smell like that. It's just got that simple fuel turpin profile, which is very unique. Um, but it's, um, psychedelic. It's, it's potent. It's very luxurious. Um, and it's in simplized form. It's, it's the building block for what we love, um, in some of these lines. So that's coming out of that Mexican Punta Rojo. And it's surprising because it's coming out of a Mexican cultivar and it's unique. And I think that's, you know, what a lot of people, you know, been digging around for and can't find. And I think it's in one of those. So El Primo is um, the line that um, I found it in. So anyway, if people are looking for to recreate some of the chem lines, I think that's where it's from. Uh, I also think I have um, what created the, uh, the chem lines, the dog bud. Uh, I think my friend made it and he, um, he just didn't realize that's what he made. Yeah. He called it something else, the mongrel. And it was also renamed the, the, the dog bud, but he called it the mongrel because it was a mix of different stuff. Um, and that may just be one version of it. Um, but I have those seeds. I'm going to try to grow them out and see what it comes out of them. They're older. So we'll see. What did he describe it as? The plants, sort of how were they? Like indica, sativa? Yeah, indicas and sativas. Okay, so they were a mix. Yeah, it was a mix. Yeah, I think he said it was like five different things. He called it the mongrel. So I have the mongrel seeds and I have the dog bud seeds. Um, so, I, you know, and these dog bud crosses and stuff. So I'll see if any of those will, um, will make it, will be able to germinate. So we'll see what comes out of them, if they're similar or what they are. Wow, we wait with bated breath. That's cool. I mean, you know, if you had to guess the exact sort of genetics that were in Chem Dog, what would you say it is? 
Well, I, I'd have to say that there would have to be some Mexican in it from my, you know, finding this Mexican Punta Rojo. So some Mexican, um, Afghani, um, probably Pakistani, uh, probably some kind of Southeast Asian in there too. Yeah. I mean, something that I've been discussing more with people like Skunk VA and some of the people who are very associated with the chem dogs is that a lot of people will talk about them as if they're like this most hardcore indica, but many of them do have a, a, a decent amount of sort of sativa-like traits to them and aspects to the high. They're just so potent, you sort of sometimes feel like it's indica. Right, and that's right. The Mexican comes along and it's super potent. It's got the chem qualities. But the Afghani kind of, I would think, uh, would go along. Like if you wanted to reproduce the chem line with that Mexican Punta Rojo and add some certain, some specific Afghanis, you'd have something pretty close. But the mongrel, I think, was like five different things. But, um, you know, who's the, I'm sure more than one person may dog, but the whole thing is no one is claiming this and nobody knows where it came from. So why not my friend that did some work around the same time and a lot of people got seeds from him. Um, a lot of people got seeds from him and then he, he because he got busted, he kind of went out of the, the, um, you know, from growing for a while and he had heart, con- he's got heart conditions and issues like that. So, um, yeah, it'd be interesting if that's what it is, but you know, who knows, there might be some other person that created dog, bud, and there's a lot of other dog lines out there. There's dog shit and there's, you know, lots of people come up with the same name. So it wouldn't be unlikely that more than one person created the same thing or something that was named the same thing. So not saying it is, but uh, I'm going to dig down the hole and see what comes out of it. Yeah, look, I'm keen to follow your progress and see how that goes. The next question we got was a good one. What's the most paranoia-inducing weed you've ever bred? So one of your strains. Someone wants to get paranoid by the sounds of it. <laughs> um, hmm. Let's see here. Paranoid-inducing. Uh, there was. Um, one I grew that has Senegalese with haze and, um, oh God, it was Angola red with the Thai. So I did one with Senegalese haze. It was um, Angola Thai with Angola red. And it was Angola red, Thai, um, Senegalese, and uh, like uh, Neville's haze. And I think that was one of the strongest paranoid inducing ones mostly was um from african sativas equatorial lines ah interesting interesting okay because you don't really see too many people playing with them outside of like yourself and maybe gooey breeder yeah gooey's not too far from you know from where i (laughs) grew it's in the same area northern california cool have you ever grown mum gooey at all I have. Uh, Gooey is very nice. Um, yeah, I, I did some work with it. I need to grow some of those seeds, but yeah, it's definitely a producer. It's got some wonderful buds on there, and yeah, it's it's good stuff. Good good stuff to grow and breed with. Yeah, beautiful. Love to hear that. So the next question we had was, what's your thoughts on the Makado, and how was the strain collected? Makado, God, you know, I heard that was it was like a. Uh, skunk northern lights haze uh, combination kind of like jack hair but uh, other than that i don't know it's definitely strong and it's got some unique traits to it so uh, i don't know yeah no look 
I, I feel you on that one. The next question, um, someone says, can you give us some insight into your process of harvesting the trichomes from seeded bud with dry ice? Oh, very easy. So basically, um, a lot of people are like, I, don't, I can't try my, my, my strains because I seed them. Well, if, you're, if you seed your lines, you basically take seeded buds. And if you use dry ice with, um, say, um, um, the, 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 the bubble bags, so you use, uh, I think, 130 trichomes, uh, sorry, millimeters, high, uh, centimeters, uh, micro mesh. So 130 uh, micro mesh bag, and you put it in, put your seeded buds in there with the dry ice crushed up, and you take like a paint bucket, and you flip it upside down, and you shake that out um, over, um, you know, something that you can collect the resin glands out. You can basically separate, even fresh bud, um, fresh bud works great. Um, because then you have like, uh, you know, that fresh, um, dry, uh, sieve and it's, it's, it hasn't been decarboxylated yet. Um, so you can use fresh buds, which are great, or you can use the dry buds. The good thing is you can separate the seeds and they're clean. And then you got this nice, um, fresh resin that you shake off from, uh, the plants. And I, I use the 130 because it kind of, you know, it gives you the smaller microns and the larger, um, mesh, you know, it kind of takes out the dust but allows you to get the resin glands and you collect that with um you know um a credit card or some kind of other card um and i i usually shake them over you know a, a plastic drum that you use for like collecting oil or something some big plastic thing you can kind of lay down and collect cool that sounds great i'm gonna have to try that next time and you can you can shake out your resin glands within a few minutes you know and collect them it's really a fast way of uh, collecting resin glands and then you separate your seeds afterwards. And uh, if you wanted to separate the seeds from all the, the trash and stuff, you can use um, a two liter Coke bottle cut up with strips and a vacuum um, uh, connected to the back end of the, the two liter bottle and the bottom cut off. And you kind of um, can feed off the, the trashy uh, sticks and everything that are associated with your seeds. And then what will be left behind are the seeds because they, they have a density and weight to them. So it's a good way of cleaning your seeds that way. Ah, that's good. I'm cleaning seeds right now, so I'm going to implement this. I'll show you a picture of it. So it's, um, you know, I'll show you what it looks like and kind of explain to you how the breakdown. It's pretty easy. You kind of build a little adapter to put on the vac into the vacuum so you can use your vacuum with it. Fastest way to de-seed. Amazing. Amazing. On to the last few fans submitted questions. The next one is, what's the most unique land race experience you've had? Oh, God. Unique, huh? Hmm. And, you know, you got me stumped on that. I don't know. Um, unique. I love them all. Um, I love the, oh, the Thai buds, you know, it's the sweet taste of the Thai, uh, like the dry, you know, it looks like, you know, what we used to get as Thai sticks or Thai buds, the sweet taste, the high was just euphoric and, and soaring. And it's just that wonderful, um, this high and it tastes so good. I think Thai buds are just amazing. Um, you know, compared to other stuff. But, um, you know, I love Mexicans as well. You know, there's the psychedelic potency, the quality, the, the giggles, the happiness from it. So I'd say it's a draw between Thai, Thai 
Thai sticks and Thai um, and Mexican um, stuff. And I've had some stuff from Veracruz that was so psychedelic and potent um, that it, it, it can be noid inducing as well. Very paranoid inducing. I remember being in Cancun and um, smoking a big old uh, joint outside the window. And then when the uh, federales, the guys, the cops there uh, shined his lights and at me because I was smoking outside the window. And I think he was just trying to scare me and fuck with me. And it got me all paranoid because I was smoking this, you know, strong ass weed um, that ended up flushing the rest of it down the toilet after smoking half the joint, <laughs> but it was legal at the time. So I think I was just, uh, you know, got overtaken by the paranoid inducing effects. It's interesting you touched on the tie there because one of the questions we got was, have you ever found any interesting terpenes in the tie lines besides the standard sort of spicy haze or the lemon that you commonly see? Uh, yeah. I mean, there's juicy fruit tie, which has got like a different fruity aroma and taste. It grows different too. Um, you know, it's more of an upright um bilateral like it grows like uh what i would consider like a golden tie um some of these golden the stuff though the gold golden tie gold king tie uh, it grows in like a an upright straight plant um some of these ties i don't it's hard to say they're kind of like a bean pole they go straight up and they have um branching that's um um basically they grow Per- perpendicular to each other, alternating perpendicular. So it's like perfect alternating form. So it's straight up and back and forth. Um, and the, the taste is more of a, a fruitiness, um, you know, ripe fruit, kind of like a mango or, you know, juicy fruit gum. Um, and then there's uh, the mango ties, which I think are very in the same family. And I think there's another Highland variety. And those were a lot of the tie sticks. Uh, there's lemon ties, which are, this Highland ties and those could be purple or green. Um, and those have like a lemon aroma or high limonene aroma. Um, and those are, there's lots of different lemon ties. Um, so, you know, it's, it's hard to say, uh, there's the, um, grassy varieties, which are like some of the Highland varieties are grassy and they're more jungly, uh, like the Chiang Mai. Um, there's the chocolate ties, which I think are mainly lowland lowland varieties or purple purple Thai varieties um but I'm, I'm trying to narrow down the specific varieties that that make up the the chocolate ties i think some of the 60s were some of the the purple highland ties or some of the lao varieties um those were like some of the first 60s chocolate ties and then i think the, the later chocolate ties were some of the uh lowland lao or some of the other uh lowland ties um that also had purple traits to them uh, I think those ones are musky, euphoric, coffee, tobacco tasting. Um, and there's also the red ties. There's ones that have red, red pigments um, or like um, brown. And those ones have uh, anthocyanins, the, the red traits, the, the carotenoid traits that seem to turn them red, uh, red stemmed, red uh, flowers, um, which also turn into like a purple as well when dried. Um, kind of similar to like a Panama red and those who kind of have um, what is very similar to all the, like the purple traits in those type of lines. And they are kind of like uh, the blackberry port wine-ish grape-ish, but not like a candied grape, more of like a, a liqueur um, turpentine profile. Um, but uh, many of them have sweet tasting stuff too. So it's hard to say 
but there's so many different ties. Um, and I'm trying to get my hands um, around a lot of them. Uh, we're going to be able to see all the different differences, but there's, there's many different fruit flavor types um, as well as the sickly sweet types, uh, highland, lowland. Um, and then you have the stuff that are more ganja varieties and more of the, uh, what they use for Thai stick. And then some of the um, indica types, they're like Thai indicas. Ah, that's something you don't hear every day. Well, they're 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 not in the true form like an indica, but they have the you know the hasher plant. They're they're thicker, um, larger. You know, they look like hash plants, but they're they're ties, but they're pure ties. They're just you know tied derivative indicas. If that makes any sense, so they it, it would be nice to see what the 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 chemotype compositions are if they have CBD in them, or um, you know if they're similar to you know, Mexicans or other things. The other thing is some of these lines were imported from Mexico uh, during the um, tie stick lines. The guy named Brian Daniels was an importer of a lot of tie sticks. His wife was married to, well, he was married to a Thai woman and her family, her father was part of like the, the head of police in Chiang Mai. And I think they, they got indigenous tribal people to uh, wrap the sticks and grow them on different um, pieces of land. And then they were able to, transport the sticks down to the, the water and avoid, um, you know, police by, you know, paying them off. And, um, basically this was done for like 20 years. Um, and they'd import sticks into Sausalito into like a San Francisco area, into Australia, into different places. Um, so a lot of the stuff was brought in from other countries like Mexico to speed up the, the, the growth rates of some of the ties. So some of the, the hybridized ties that were grown in Thailand, and, and Cambodia and Laos were probably like Mexican seeds or Colombian. Some of the Colombian seeds were brought to Colombia um, and produced a line called Sky Blue Blonde because the, some of the Thai lines were, the Thai varieties were shorter flowering than the long, uh, you know, Colombian gold varieties. You know, and Thais are extremely long, but Colombians are even longer. Um, but you can't grow a lot of Mexicans in Colombia because they couldn't deal with the, the extended... Um, you know, um, daylight hours. So they had to find varieties that would grow there. Huh. What a detailed tie backstory I wasn't expecting to get. I love it. Well, good. <laughs> yeah, I was about to say, it does make me wonder how many other ties there are out there that just sort of don't get any mention. Well, there, I mean, what people grew there, there you know, they, they'd call it one thing and then they, they'd, rename it as something else so there's highland ties lowland ties um stuff that was purple tie maybe renamed here in the states as chocolate tie um lowland laos could be renamed as chocolate tie um some of the mango ties could be sold here as golden ties uh some of the juicy fruit ties could have been renamed as like golden ties um some of the buddha sticks could have been renamed as um you know from some of the lowland Laos or Cambodians, uh, you know, it, it was resellers trying to make money off some of this stuff. I know in, in 1988, I, we bought a chocolate pie out of San Jose for, um, it was 80 bucks for an eighth, which was a lot because most eighths were, you know, 10, 15 bucks. <laughs> <laughs> so 80, 80 bucks, it was quite a bit or 75 bucks for an eighth for chocolate pie was quite a bit. Yeah. Nice. So, the final fence mood question we have, which is actually a really good one, um, they have asked, 
What is it that keeps you up at night in relation to cannabis? What's the most concerning aspect of the modern cannabis scene or culture, in your opinion? Uh, the loss of um, genetic germplasm. We're losing so much of these old lines because people are growing up gelato and these other fast flowering lines that are kind of generic. Um, and what they w- should be growing are these varieties that will give them these awesome highs and these effects. But the problem is no one's experienced them because they didn't grow up in those ages. Uh, so it's genetic loss that I'm fearing the most because there's so many varieties that we lose due to non-viable seeds, due to not getting the support to remake them or to make them available. Um, it's just genetic loss because there's so much that is awesome about the cannabis. I mean, these things have evolved with people. So cannabis is, 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 is unique and, um, and varied as all the people in the world. So you have all the different spices and tastes and colors and um, experiences of all these different people and fruits and vegetables that cannabis kind of um, holds in its, you know, its makeup. Um, so it's like an experience, but a human experience in a plant that you grow that you can smoke. So you can, ex- you can, ex- you can smoke an experience. So all that's going to be lost, all that history, um, unless we're able to preserve some of it. And, you know, I can't do it all and, and my friends can't do it all. So we need help from the general public to help, you know, make this something that people want to try because once you get to try this stuff, you're going to want more of it because it's, it's uh, beautiful and happy and you don't get stoned, you get high and, and you get, um, you unlock knowledge that's not necessarily available to people unless they partake in something like this. Cannabis allows you to use your mind uh, in a way like a person that's studying meditation for you know many many years, like a yogi, somebody that's able to get their mind to a place where they're able to perceive um, things that most people can't because they're able to get to that level. Well, cannabis is a tool that allows you to get to that stage in a much much faster rate just by smoking it. Um, it allows you to free your minds from the constraints of um, what we think is moral or immoral and allows you to see things for what they are. And um, normal cannabis that people are smoking doesn't do that. But some of the varieties that uh, are Thai or Mexican or Vietnamese or ca- uh, Colombian, those can allow you to get to those places and allow you to access that knowledge that you normally wouldn't be able to get. So. I just hope more people will um, take the time to either support the people that grow these varieties or uh, help the people that can make these um, available to more people. Hear, 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 hear. Brilliant sentiment. So that brings us to our final quick five questions for the interview. So first one being, what is the single best or most memorable experience in relation to cannabis you have? Oh, man. Uh, I think the first time I smoked Panama Red, I was uh, at my high school and I had smoked some Panama Red and I thought it was laced with LSD. I didn't realize at the time that you can't smoke LSD, but I had had LSD before that and I knew the experience. So I was so so high that my friends had to carry me um, up to the school because uh, I was just too high 
from the experience that I thought I was, uh, it, it had been laced with uh, LSD <laughs> and I thought I was going to be flying high for a very long time because some of these experiences from cannabis can be um, like a very strong psychedelic experience for a short period of time, you know, a few hours or an hour or whatever it might be. It feels like hours. Uh, but that was a very memorable experience that first panel I read. Amazing. I love it. I love it. So on the other end of the spectrum, what's a strain that all your friends were, you know, hyping up, telling you it was going to be great. And then when you finally had it, you were like, oh, is that it? G13. G13 was something that was always kind of like hyped up for many, many years. And it was this government strain. When I smoked it. It's, it's, it's potent. It's narcotic. It's, it's, generic it's not so it's it's great crossed other things it's a it's a shitty grower it's a small little hash plant it's it's nothing special but it's hype to be something special so you know hype works i guess <laughs> i love it i love it okay <laughs> so if i was going to drop you off on a desert island and you can take three strains with you to grow for the rest of time what would you take with you Ooh, that's hard um purple haze um acapulco gold god this is hard <laughs> chocolate tie just for lack of you know i think i'd be happy with those three strains though i i still want others but uh yeah those would make me very happy for a long time but i still want others but i think that kind of covers a lot of things Love it, love it, love it, love it. So let's say uh, you're dropping someone else off on the island, someone you're not a big fan of. What are you going to leave them with? Mm. Maybe some hemp. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, I'm a nice guy, so I'd probably let him have some, like, northern lights or something. <laughs> yeah, something to numb the pain. Yeah, that's totally cruel. <laughs> Love it. Okay. And so final question then, if I gave you a time machine and you can go back anywhere in history, any time, where are you going to go and what are you going to collect in presumably seeds or clones? <clears throat> wow. Um, I think the, the Zoroastrian age, uh, you know, when everybody was migrating to the Balkh region, uh, worshiping cannabis as Heoma, uh, they were bringing in cannabis from all over the world. Uh, you know, there's Sumerians, there's um, Acadians, uh, there's all kinds of different peoples there. Um, Indus Valley. Um, yeah, so yeah, this Western age. So basically, um, like 13,000, 13, 1300, no, 1300 BCE. And uh, I think I'd be collecting a lot of different stuff at that point. Yeah, definitely. I think it would be wild. Uh, the other place would be maybe the 1960s in Colombia and Mexico. Some brilliant answers there. I love both of them. Get funky with it. So <laughs> I think that just about brings us to the end of it. Were there any comments or shout outs you wanted to make? Um, I just like to say that um, I couldn't get here without my friends. Um, you know, some newer, some older. Um, you can't do anything without your friends. So you should always, um, you know, thank the people that help you get where you're at. So thank you to my friends, uh, family. Um, that's it. Thank you guys.
Incredible, incredible. So, again, huge thank you and shout out to John of Snow High Seeds, the Land Race Lover, Breeder Extraordinaire, so much more. We're so incredibly appreciative for you taking the time to join us today. Thanks for having me. And there you have it, friends. A huge thank you to Snow High for coming by, sharing all of his knowledge, land races, breeding, preserving, history, future predictions, so much more. We're incredibly appreciative. Thank you so much, John. And as always, huge thank you to our incredible sponsors, Seeds Here Now, all the latest breeders, the hottest drops, an incredible new website. They've been slashing prices to give you the best deals while still offering their patent guarantee on satisfaction and germination. Check them out. Likewise, Simply Souvenirs, if you're after a hand-selected range of boutique genetics, both local and international, check them out, guys. They've got everything you need from seeds to smoking accessories to vapes, everything under the sun, Simply Souvenirs. They'll look after you. Best customer service in the game. Huge shout out, Simply Souvenirs. Big shout out to our friends at Copert Biological Systems, providing all the predators you need to keep your garden pest and pathogen free. Check out the Spidex Vital if you're worried about spider mites. You should release these things periodically, guys, I promise you. You will view it as an investment in your garden. Ensuring that you never have any spider mites in your garden should be one of your key priorities as a cultivator. Huge shout out, Copert Biological Systems. We appreciate you and your support. Likewise, Pulse Sensors. Do you want more yield, more resin, better flower, better concentrates? Who doesn't? Check out Pulse, guys. If you're ready to get serious, get a Pulse Sensor from a single tent to a single room to a multi-facility operation. Don't let hidden variables hold your crop back. Get your grow parameters in check and start yielding the highest quality possible. Huge shout out, Pulse Sensors. Thank you so much. Likewise, big shout out to the Patreon gang. We love and appreciate you. Please consider checking out the Patreon if you want early access to upcoming episodes, additional interviews you won't get access to unless you're on there, as well as genetic giveaways and ad-free content. Check it out, friends. That's the Patreon, www.patreon.com forward slash the podcast. All one word. We love and appreciate you. And there you have it, my friends. Part one of this two-part hitter from the man himself, Snow High. Come on back for the next one and I'll see you there. I'll see you.